This is episode 144 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. This episode goes back to the 2016 Annual Enrichment Conference Movement. This is session one with Mark Hafner. It's been my privilege uh, to give oversight to the ministries of CB Northwest for these last 16 years. Uh, when I started here uh, 16 years ago, um, I was the only one in the room with brown hair, and uh, now I'm just one of the few with gray hair. And uh, so we are incredibly excited about the way in which God has been uh, bringing down our, our age group, amen? I mean, that's pretty good. Uh, one of the things that I remember is the first year that I was brought into this role, uh, we had three kids in childcare. Now I got 70, and uh, so that is a, a major demographic uh, transition there. So it's good to be with you tonight. It's my privilege to kind of kick off the conference um, by looking at the, the, the big picture of this idea of movement. Uh, tonight what I'd like to do is just kind of walk us through a number of the things that uh, I've had the privilege of experiencing as um, one who travels around the Northwest and gets to connect with our churches uh, throughout Oregon, Idaho, Washington, and Alaska. Now, I understand that there's a group of churches here uh, or some guys representing a group of churches from Montana. And uh, we just are praying that that area, there's good fishing, all right? Uh, we have decided, and it was a vote by our trustees uh, this morning, that we're going to trade the far uh, southeast corner of Idaho for Montana. And, uh, and so uh, uh, we're going to go all the way to Burley, Idaho, and that's going to be a part of our association. And everything east and south of Burley, Idaho, we're just going to give that away uh, to the Rocky Mountain Association. And then we're just graciously uh, going to take off of their hands uh, Montana. What is, sounds like a good idea uh, to me. Uh, a lot of good, good fishing. As we think about CB Northwest over these last bunch of years, 16 years ago when I had the privilege of coming into this role, one of the, uh, the, the gentlemen who had the role before me, Larry McCracken, uh, brought me in his office and he sat down with me and uh, he basically said, uh, passing the torch to you. And uh, in that process of doing that, he, he made this statement to me. He said, Mark, he says, there's about 10 years, um, and if this doesn't transition in 10 years, it will be no more. And I thought, well, thanks a lot. Um, appreciate you handing me the keys to that car. And, and, and I was just kind of thinking about that as he said it, and he got up from his desk and started walking out the door, and he kind of turned and he looked at me and says, you know, five. Five years. What Larry was getting at was that the Evangelical Church of America had entered into such a plateau, such a decline, that the fear of us being able to um, see the kind of growth that would establish churches reproducing churches, uh, elder-level leadership reproducing elders, um, shepherds reproducing shepherds, uh, that um, if something didn't happen, uh, that it, 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 we were not going to exist in the, in the form in which we, we had existed. That was a sobering moment 16 years ago. And I can remember calling Dave Setti and asking Dave Setti to, to come and to uh, be on CB Northwest staff. And the reason why I asked Dave to come and be a part of our staff is because I knew that Dave had been instrumental throughout the Northwest in being a part of the prayer summit movement. That Dave was a man of prayer and, and that Dave believed that uh, if we as churches would humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face, that he would hear from us and that he would lead us in a direction that would bring him honor and glory. So Dave came on our staff and he began to, um, to help us 
discern the mind of God, to begin to pray, to, to try to figure out what we should do. And the very first thing that we realized we needed to do was to call uh, all of the pastors, all of the leaders of our churches together to pray. And so 16 years ago, we had our first prayer summit up at Camp Tadmore, where uh, many came and prayed for those four days. Uh, over 200 pastors and elders came, and, and we spent our time before the Lord on our knees, praying, seeking the face of God. And we really believed that God was going to give us just a clear uh, voice, a clear direction that he would have us to go. And basically, he gave us nothing. We prayed and we worshiped and we sought the face of God and all we got out of that was that we need to pray and we need to worship and we need to seek the face of God. And little by little, as the days went on and the weeks turned into years, all of a sudden what we realized is that there was a bucket load of sin that we just needed to deal with as churches. And we began to identify that sin, and we began to, to try to address that sin through repentance and prayer and asking God to forgive us. And, and pretty soon, we began to see God starting to shape a few things. And as we saw God beginning to shape a few things, it led some, some courageous men who were on our, our trustee board at that time and our executive committee uh, to embrace the idea that we needed to ask God to give us a clarity of identity. In other words, who is it that God declares us to be? What is the church of Jesus Christ through the Northwest Conservative Baptist going to look like from God's perspective? If we could hear clearly from God what it is that he would have us to be, what would that look like? And so we began the process of trying to understand uh, what identity is all about. And so 16 years ago, we started a pilgrimage that, that ended six years later in the ratifying of what we understand today to be our identity document. That identity document, it consists of, an, of, of these three major components. One is a, a clear, um, definitive statement of doctrine. This is what we believe. Second is a, a call to how are we going to make decisions as the churches gather together in covenant community. And so a clear polity statement came out of that. And then a philosophy of ministry that, that led us to a clarity of not only vision, what would we look like if we were hitting on all cylinders? If, if we were a healthy group of churches that were uh, just kicking it out of the park by bringing the gospel to our communities, what would we look like? And so that vision then began to become more and more clear as God began to help us identify our values. And those values became that which drove every decision that we made with that vision in mind. And as that vision began to take shape through uh, value-based decision-making, we began to see God put us on mission. Because of being in this role, I've had the privilege of seeing so many wonderful things over these last bunch of years. And, and I just wanted to kind of give you a, a vision of what I saw this year. Uh, but before I do that, I want to just call your attention to a couple things that I've been able to be a part of uh, because you have afforded me the opportunity to be in this role and to serve you. Last year, you'll remember Jim Brown was a part of our, our time here, and Jim was fading quickly uh, from the, um, the devastating effects of cancer. Jim went to be with Jesus here this, this last year, and I had the privilege of being able to, to do his memorial service and to, to minister to his church on your behalf. Uh, I also this year have had the privilege of sitting in Rob Zacklin's home. Many of you know Rob. Rob is in the same spot Jim was last year. And so, so Rob is somebody, if you go on Caring Tree, you can follow his story, but Rob is somebody who has um, just uh, been... Um, 
deteriorating in his cancer situation. I've been in his home a number of times. Many of you have been in his home. Uh, but it looks like um, from his wife and talking with her that over 500 people have come to his bedside to sit down with Rob. And each time they've walked out with a clear understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope of glory, what it means to, to actually die in this physical body with Christ and the hope of a, of a new body and a new uh, introduction to Jesus Christ on a personal level. And it's been my privilege to be able to, to go and to spend time uh, with Rob and with his family because you've given me that privilege of being in this role. You know, there's a few other things that I've been able to do because of what you have allowed me to do. And, and probably the most rewarding is being invited into your churches to help kick off elder level training. The privilege of being able to come to uh, your church and to set a, a year-long process of how do we understand and experience what it means to shepherd not only our own soul, but what does it mean to shepherd our, our family, our wife and our kids? And what does it then mean to shepherd those that God has put under us within the context of our local church? And then what does it mean to, to put together a a, a band of shepherds who leads a church into a community that desperately needs Jesus Christ. So some of the word pictures that I want to give you are those, the word pictures of you and the leadership of your church entering into your communities this last year. What does that look like around the Northwest? Well, the first one that I want to uh, just talk about is the, the area of food bank ministry. Do you realize that out of your churches, literally thousands of families have been able to walk in and get a box of food to help sustain them for the next week? You realize that through your church, literally thousands of people have been able to come to your kitchens and receive a hot meal throughout the Northwest because of your food bank ministries and your meal ministries, people have come and they have received food. Do you realize that there have been hundreds of tons of produce that have been farmed by your churches in your community gardens where people can come and, and they can take food from uh, the gardens that, that you and your people are putting forward and that in the process they're taking home tons and tons of produce. It's a beautiful thing to see. The other thing that has come out of you this last year that is so amazing is just the way in which your churches have responded to crisis. I just want to give you a few of them. One of them took place in uh, Grant County. A forest fire went um, through the, the woods of Grant County and destroyed 40 homes. There were three or four of those homes that were actually people who attend uh, our churches there in Grant County. And it was not only our church and the, and, and the churches of Grant County, but, but our churches around the Northwest who, who brought in relief and who started to minister to these people and, and who mediated between townspeople and, and forest service workers and forest fighters and, and just all of the tension that took place, we found uh, it was the body of Christ that was inserted into that community uh, when that devastating fire roared through Grant County. The county right next to it, Harney County, had a militia group come in and take over one of the federal buildings, began to carry with them as much firepower as they possibly could as a, as a show of their First Amendment right, Second Amendment right, excuse me. And in the process of doing that, it caused other militia groups to come into the county because they wanted to enter into the publicity that would take place. And, and it tore apart a community. 
law enforcement people were threatened. Ranchers were threatened. There were a whole community of people that were just torn apart by the militia that came in and the, and the federal government came in. And, and it was our church in Harney County that was able to, to stand and bring to that the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of that turmoil. It, it was our church that, that led a campaign for the gospel through a, an outreach event right in the middle of all of that. It was our church who, who sat with the families who were torn apart because of the threats that were uh, made against their families and against their husbands and, and those who were, who were in law enforcement and those ranchers that were threatened. The Church of Jesus Christ standing in the midst of crisis, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the community of Sitka, Alaska, a landslide came through and ripped through a section of new homes that were built. Three people were killed, and it, it was our church that became the place where people gathered to wait to find out the fates of people that they wondered about as they dug through and looked for the bodies and the people that they wondered whether they would, were in that or not. It was our church that got to begin to minister to people wondering whether or not they were even safe any longer because the whole town is underneath that mountain that began to slide. Our churches bringing the gospel and bringing comfort to people in crisis. But it's not just that. Every week, Roy Libby calls to your churches and, and he asks for prayer requests and, and some of you will actually give him some every once in a while. No, most of you do really, really well. And he faithfully types up those prayer requests and then he brings those to our, our staff and, and those go out to our trustees and a, a form of that goes up on the web. And every week people are praying for our churches. But as we think about what you ask us to pray about, all of a sudden we begin to realize that literally hundreds of people have come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because of you and the churches that you lead. Hundreds of people have been baptized this last year because of the ministry that you have put forth this last year. It's an incredible thing to see people being saved and people being baptized simply because our churches are reaching out and loving people within the context of your communities. But it's more than that. It's much, much more than that. Because what you have been able to do is to not only help people be reconciled to God, but you've helped husbands to be reconciled to their wife and wife to husband. Uh, you've helped children be reconciled back to their parents and parents back to their children. Uh, you've helped church members who have been at odds with one another be reconciled to one another because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is amazing when you stop and you think about what 274 churches in four states affects within the context of local community. And you are to be commended for the work that Jesus Christ has done in and through your churches this last year. And you can times that year after year after year. So when we stop and we just think for a moment about is God really building his church? The answer is yes. The answer is yes, he is doing a, a great work but he's doing a great work that goes beyond just any one church in any one community. But it's the, it's the coming together of God's churches that even becomes more and more impressive. In other words, as churches begin to work together in communities and, and they begin to have a vision from God about how we can do so much more together than we can ever do by ourselves, and, and as they, they begin to uh, work with one another, now all of a sudden we're starting to see churches together planting churches. 
We're beginning to see churches come together uh, to run ministries, to help one another, uh, to, to, to serve in a local community um, by together coming to that community. One of the beautiful examples of that took place uh, in Roseburg, Oregon, when uh, a shooter went into uh, the Umpqua Community College there and um, killed a number of people. And one of our churches there, Wellspring, uh, the sheriff, who's the coroner for that area, he's the one who had to process that whole crime scene. And as he uh, had to do that, and our, our pastor, uh, Ron, Ron Lager at that time, was ministering to this gentleman who was one of his elders, who was also the one having to, to process the crime scene. They began to, to just ask God to, to raise up within their community those that could minister to all of the people that were affected by that tragic event in Roseburg, Oregon. And God began to bring the church together to minister to families in all kinds of contexts. People who had never heard of the love of Jesus Christ were now being loved and ministered to by churches just simply because they were people who were in crisis, were people who were hurting. But not only that, you as churches make it possible for us to put chaplains all around the world military chaplains of every branch, police chaplains, hospital chaplains, chaplains in hospitals. Because of your churches coming together in covenant community, it, it, it creates an association of churches that, that makes up what we understand to be the Northwest Association of Churches. But we're connected to eight other associations that make up a community of regions called CB America. And it's because of that national entity that we can have a national chaplaincy program. And that chaplaincy program allows the gospel of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed everywhere that our military goes. To be able to bring the gospel not only to those who are in our military, but those that are military effects. But it's because of you that, that we had the privilege at the, the CB America level to go to Capitol Hill and to fight for the rights of chaplains to be able to use their Bibles, to be able to pray in the name of Jesus, to be able to, to use references to the gospel of Jesus Christ in our, our, our veterans' hospitals. And God granted us favor to where we were able to, to win that battle and to be able to free our chaplains in that area to bring Jesus Christ. But it's even beyond that. It's groups of churches saying that they're going to work with other groups of churches. I have the privilege this um, uh, August of taking and representing our mid-Columbia churches and we will be able to go and to meet with our sister churches in the country of Indonesia. 220 CB churches in the country of Indonesia. Churches that are, are reproducing churches, but churches that are under incredible difficulty. And so we get the privilege of being able to go there and, and to try to understand how we might be a help to them, but more how they're gonna help us and how we can partner together to be a movement of Jesus Christ around the globe. You and your churches are working in mission fields all around the world. You send people, you support people. Uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is going out because of the church of Jesus Christ of which you represent. And I just want you to know that I'm incredibly thankful to be a part of who you are. As we think about this conference and we think about what it is that we're here to talk about, the idea is this idea of movement. If you go back into our history and you understand when we came out of the Northern Baptist Convention and a number of the leaders of churches that were a part of the Northern Baptist Convention landed at Henson Memorial Baptist Church for the purpose of establishing conservative in other words, those who believed in the fundamentals uh, 
foundational orthodoxy and that we were going to put missionaries around the world who championed that orthodoxy so that, so that the truths of God's word through the power of the Holy Spirit could lead a gospel presence around the world so that people could hear about the love of Jesus Christ. When you read about those who started that movement, one of the things that you see is that's the word that they described it as, a movement. In other words, there was going to be a movement of taking the gospel around the world, that we were going to band together as a covenant community of churches, an association of churches, a family of churches, and together we were going to champion the truths that we see in God's word so that they might be effective in the lives of those who had not yet heard. And so thus we began what was called a movement. But 15 years ago, 16 years ago, uh, the man who had my job said, you know what, I think that movement is about glacial speed. Uh, it ain't moving very fast. We're not, we're not getting this job done. And the, the problem is not one that we can blame on somebody else. We got to look at ourselves. And so tonight what I would like to do is we begin to, to think about where we're going to go in this conference, what we're going to be talking about in this conference. I think it's important for us to kind of understand in the global sense what we're up against. What does it really mean for us to be the, the church of Jesus Christ? What are the barriers uh, to us being on mission? Now, we're going to have three keynote speakers that are going to address uh, different areas of barriers that uh, we come up against to be on mission. We're going to be looking at the barrier of materialism. We're going to be looking at the barrier of comfort and the barrier of fear. But tonight I want to look at this from more of a, of a global perspective. And so if you take your Bible and turn to 1 John. In 1 John, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, some of the things that John tells us there in 1 John. But to kind of set the context, as I, as I thought about what John was, was teaching, I, I, I thought it would be important to kind of uh, start back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 26. Jesus said this, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So here we see that Jesus speaks of a kingdom that Satan possesses. That, that how will his, Satan's, kingdom stand? Two verses later, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, he says this, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So notice what Jesus says. He says that, that there's another kingdom, a kingdom that has come upon you. And so what we see here is that there are these two kingdoms, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God, and they are in conflict with one another. It goes on to say, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So as these two kingdoms come in conflict, what is it that we need to understand about this conflict? If we are going to penetrate through the barriers that keep us from being on mission. So as I was Preaching through 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. In our church, we're going through a, a series, uh, what it means to be on the road with Jesus. And, and in that series, we've, we've made it all the way through uh, 1 John. And in 1 John chapter 5, there is this, this passage that is an amazing passage of Scripture. And as I came to this passage in, in 1 John chapter 5, there's two verses in that passage that caused me great pause. They're verse 18 and 19. Look what it says, 1 John 5, 18 and 19. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, 
and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. So I want to just stop there and kind of get the first idea. 1 John chapter 5 is bringing us back to a comprehensive understanding of the walk of faith that he has been developing all throughout the book. As we think about the book and and we understand some of the key parts to the book, we realize that in 1 John chapter 3, we kind of have this summary statement of the whole Bible. In in, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, look at what it says there. It says, and this is the commandment. Note the singular nature of the commandment. Not commandments, but there's one command here. So he says, and this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he is commanded. So this one commandment carries with it two very important parts. The first part is that I believe, and the second part is that I love. And they are just the natural outflow of the fact that I am God's that I abide in God and God abides in me. In other words, what he's saying here is that our spiritual life is evidenced by the fact that I believe in love. Just like my physical life, there's evidence that I'm alive because I inhale and I exhale. So when I got up this morning, I didn't check to see if I was breathing. I just pretty much assumed I was breathing because I woke up. When we think about this whole idea of physical life, we realize that the inhaling and the exhaling is just a part of what it means to be alive. And when you and I get asthma, or like I've fought with for the last month and a half, pneumonia, All of a sudden, you don't take breathing for granted anymore. All of a sudden, you're really thankful when you can breathe and not cough, or you don't need an inhaler. And so we understand that our physical life, when breathing gets interrupted, it really is a big deal. In other words, most of us have become incredibly fond of air. Amen? Let me ask you the question, have you become incredibly fond of God's Spirit? Because the Spirit of God to the spiritual life is like air to the physical life. In other words, the reason I can believe and the reason I can love is because of the Spirit of God. The reason I can inhale and the reason I can exhale is because of the gift of air that God has given me. So that's what he says in verse 24. Look at what he says. He says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. In other words, the fact that I get up in the morning and I brush my teeth and I go to work is evidence of the fact that I'm alive. The fact that I believe and I love is evidence of the fact that I am alive spiritually. Therefore, just like I get up and go to work physically, I get up and I keep his commandments spiritually. The fact that God lives in you and God lives in me means that we can do good works. And those good works bless people because they are the good works of God. So just like I want to get up in the morning in my physical body and do good works so that I might bless people, when I do it spiritually, the blessing now becomes a representation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So look at what he says in chapter 4, or excuse me, chapter 5. He says, we know we are from God. Why is it that we know we are from God? Because we are born of God. We, we, we don't have to sin the way we did before we knew God. In, in other words, John says, I write these things that you might not sin. In other words, if you just breathe spiritually, then you could keep God's commandments and you don't have to participate in the things of the flesh, but now you can walk in the Spirit. And because I'm walking in the Spirit, because I have the Spirit of God, this enemy between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God, this enemy, Satan, cannot touch God's church. 
but he doesn't stop there. What is it that, that causes me such great pause when I read these verses? Look at the next phrase, verse 19, part B. And the whole world, you see it? And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The eternal, the, the eternal reality is that Satan cannot touch his church, cannot touch God's church. But we also know that, that God has placed his church in the world. And we also know that the, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Thus, the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan rages. So I think it's important if we are going to press through the barriers that keep us from being on mission to the degree that God would have us to be on mission, we need to understand what we're up against as churches. And so I want to take a little bit of time and see if we can't understand what this looks like from the Bible. The first thing that I want to look at is this idea of the age in which we live in, the present age. In Galatians 1.4, look at what Paul says. He says that Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Notice that the, the Bible calls the age we live in evil. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Therefore, the age that the world is in is evil. Ephesians 5.16 gets at this same idea. Paul says, redeem the time. Why? Because the days are evil. The days are evil. The age is evil. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Colossians 1.13 takes it a little further. And he says, we see that when we are converted, when we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we're saved that we are delivered from the domain of darkness. So look at what he's driving at. Because the whole world lies in the power of darkness, because the age is evil, because the days are evil, because there's a, a darkness that has dominion, we, who have become a part of God's church, the redeemed, those who are the children of God, we have been delivered out from that darkness, from that dominion. The second idea that we see in Scripture related to um, this age is what we understand to be called the, the God of this age. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, uh, Paul moves from the condition of the world to the God of the world. Paul says it like this, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. No wonder the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If the evil one is the God of the age and he can blind the minds of of unbelievers. Ephesians 2.2 gets at the same idea. You all once walked according to the age of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Is that not one of the most terrifying statements you've ever read? Think about the statement for just a minute. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. Describe that for just a second. Think about it for just a second. As I was trying to understand what that meant, I ran across what Piper said about that statement. He said it like this. He said, the air we breathe, the atmosphere um, in which we live and move is permeated by the personal evil power, the power of the air. So John says the, the whole world lies under this evil power. The power of the ruler is called here the prince of the power of the air. Notice the power works through and in is manifested in the sons of disobedience. Satan somehow fills the, the whole atmosphere, the air, with his power. But he is specifically at work 
inside those who walk in disobedience to Christ. Wow. It's amazing what the Bible says about our enemy. Some other thoughts. John 12, 31 says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the rule of this world be cast out. John 14, 30 says, uh, Jesus says this, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. John eleven sixteen, Jesus simply says it like this, the ruler of this world is judged. And 1 John 5, 19 says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Surely what this text is implying is that the, the evil one is the ruler of this world, or as Paul says, the God of this age, or the prince of the power of the air. So here's the question. Why, why talk about this? Why talk about Satan, the evil age, and all that that infers? This is why. Do we share the Bible's view of the world? Do we share the Bible's view of the world? If we believe what our Bible says, then, then we will embrace a radically different worldview than what our society and most of the people who live in our culture have. What, what does that mean? Do we see Satan as the God of business, the God of industry, the God of commerce, the God of politics? the God of education, the arts, recreation, and entertainment? Is the Bible right when it says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one? That's what we're up against. That's what we're up against. I believe that the primary barrier to the church being on mission is that we have been lulled to sleep, not seeing the world as God describes it. We need clear, discerning judgment to know how we should then live and minister in this day, in this age, in this atmosphere, with this evil enemy, Satan. One of the great truths of Scripture is this idea that we are more than conquerors. In 1 John 4.4, 4, I love what he says. As we've studied through 1 John, this, this verse in 4.4 4 says this, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. The them is referring to the, the, the prophets of the Antichrist. So over here is this, this loud representation of prophecy that comes from Antichrist and his prophets. And it says all that that says and all that repre that represents, representing Satan and his worldview, all of that, you and I have become overcomers. Why? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So the, the Bible teaches us that, that Jesus has completely defeated the world. He has conquered the world. John 12, 31 says, Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. I love what John 16, 11 says, The ruler of this world is judged. Hebrews 2, 14 says it like this, Christ took on human flesh so that through death he might destroy him who has power of death. That is the devil. Colossians 2.15 says, God disarmed the principalities and the powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them 
in Christ. Here's the issue. Here's the issue. As glorious and as decisive as the victory is that Christ won when he died and rose again, it would be a mistake for us to think that the war is over. The war is not over. John 12, 31 says, Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. The world is, the, the war is not over. In John 17, 15, he says, I do not pray for these, that they should be taken out of the world, but that they should be kept from the evil one. So, so listen carefully to this point. This is the key. This is, this is what this conference is about. One of the great mysteries of the age of the church is that even though Christ has decisively defeated Satan through his death, burial, and resurrection, the evil one is still active as the ruler of this world, the ruler of the age, the ruler of the air. So therefore, how does the conflict between the two kingdoms rage when those who are a part of God's church cannot be touched by the evil one? And yet the evil one dominates the air. What is it that the church of Jesus Christ is to be all about? In other words, if I was to say it in, in cowboy vernacular, what are the tools that the church has for kicking Satan's gates, for kicking the gates of Sheol, for kicking down those strongholds that the Bible says that the church will take down. If our churches are going to lead people into eternal life and eternal joy through faith in Jesus Christ, we're going to have to come to terms with the fact that the gospel is the centerpiece of the church of Jesus Christ when it's on mission and when it is displaying compassion. When Jesus said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. What was he saying? Again, I want to I give you a quote from Piper. He says it like this, to feed, clothe, heal, house, and educate people without working toward their conversion to Christ is wickedly unloving. It would be like giving someone who has a fever a painkiller, knowing the whole time that in your pocket is the antibiotic that will take away their infection. Feeding, clothing, healing, housing, and educating take on a biblical definition of good when they are coupled with the kind of love that calls people to repentance and faith in Christ. What does that mean for us tonight? Let me see if I can give you a word picture. What would health care look like in the Northwest if the gospel was at the center of it? What would education look like in the Northwest if the gospel was at the center of it? What would commerce look like in the Northwest if the gospel was at the center of it? What would recreation look like in the Northwest if the gospel was at the center of it? What would law enforcement look like in the Northwest if the gospel was at the center of it? 
you know the answer. It's your church on mission. How many doctors and nurses are in our churches? The gospel is at the center of health care. How many teachers are in our churches? The gospel is at the center of education. How many people in your church recreate? The gospel is at the center of recreation. It's not that we're not at the center of politics. It's not that we are not at the center of education. It's not that we're not at the center. The problem isn't that we're not there. The problem is, is that we don't understand what we're up against. We don't understand that it's going to require something supernatural by our people to be able to defeat a supernatural enemy. You see, Satan is already at work deceiving the minds of the unbelievers. He's already got a spiritual foothold in their lives. And the only way in which the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to penetrate through that spiritual defense mechanism that Satan has is for the gospel to be brought in a relevant way so that the supernatural power of Jesus Christ in his saving love might render the evil one defeated and people might come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Do our churches really understand what we're up against? Do they really understand the enemy that we are fighting? Because, see, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, is it? But it's against principalities and rulers of this present darkness. And so, therefore, we need to understand what it means to fight this enemy. There are five key things that Satan does that already puts us in a bad spot when we walk into the places of his strongholds. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4 says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Do you understand what we're up against? Satan has already blinded their minds. Matthew 13, 4 and verse 19 says, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Then you go to verse 19, and it says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in the heart. That is what is sown along the path. Not only does Satan blind people's minds, but Satan snatches the word away from people who hear. A third thing that Satan does is represented in Matthew 24, 24. False Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So the third thing that we see is that Satan does deceptive signs and wonders. The fourth thing we see is found in 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 and 18, where Paul talks and he tells the church that he had endeavored eagerly to come to them again and again, but Satan, what? He hindered us. So Satan hinders the missionary efforts in general. The fifth thing that we see is that Satan throws Christians into prison and persecutes them. Revelation 2.10, to the church of Smyrna, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. What are we up against? What we are up against is a global power that touches and in some way measures and controls all culture and society. Though Satan seemingly is not opposed to the everyday things of life, like eating and sleeping, working, 
recreating, as long as these things wield no power against his kingdom. But do not be deceived. He is vehemently opposed to the centerpiece of the church, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of the loving compassion of the church is to meet personal needs and to proclaim the message of repentance and faith that advances the gospel that Satan will oppose. We're in a war, but we don't fight like the devil fights. Little children, 1 John 4, 4 says, you are of God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. So how does John, in the book of 1 John, in chapter 5, verse 21, he says it like this, little children, keep yourself from idols. What does that mean? Idolatry dulls our sense of who it is that we're up against. We need to strip away every idol that we might see who it is we're fighting so that we might bring the very best of God's commandments as we breathe the gospel out to those that we are trying to reach. So let me conclude with this idea. 15 years ago, we were plateaued, we were declining. The vast majority of the work of CB Northwest 15 years ago was working with sick and dying churches, and we were closing about five to seven churches every year. As we came to the process of the identity document, all of a sudden what began to happen is we understood this is what God has called us to do, and we began to address those problems. It started in prayer. He moved the church leaders of CB Northwest to a, a plurality of elder character quality men who focused on becoming humble shepherds united together in Christ seeking God's will. Those elders began to believe that God doesn't expose our sins and our weakness to condemn us, but he does so so that we can experience the joy of repentance and return to our first love as his church. What happened next in the Northwest was the hardest thing that I've ever been through in my whole life. The spiritual attacks of the evil one were beyond belief. In one year's time, every association in the Northwest had an elder level moral failure. They got to such a level that in one year, there was a new moral failure in the CB churches of the Northwest every single month. And this was on top of God helping our churches process through their historical and corporate sin. It got so bad that Dave Seddy and I begged God to give us one year with no moral failures in the churches of the Northwest. And he did exactly that. He gave us 12 months, ticked us off. We should have asked for 50 years <laughs> of no moral failures. It was 12 months in the 13th month. Guess what? There was another moral failure. However, they began to become less and less and less. And then God began to lead us to corporate prayer strategy, a prayer to pray for every CB pastor, every trustee, every executive committee member, every CB staff member every week 
there has not been a week that's gone by in the last 10 years that every pastor and every church, every trustee and every executive committee member hasn't been prayed for in this association of churches. Lastly, God showed us a shepherding strategy, how to serve our churches in a way that would help them to identify, train, mentor, coach, and to empower next generation elders and shepherds. And we believe that God has taken us through all of this so that we can be the church that he desires us to be. So where do we sit today, 10 years later, from the time in which we agreed this is who God declares us to be, an identity document? We're at the point where we need to re-examine our purity. We need to ask God again, is there anything that we're missing? What have we begun to embrace that, God, you would call idolatry? So we've sent to every one of your churches a survey, and we've asked you to fill out that survey, not because we want to evaluate your church, but because we want to evaluate the covenant community of churches of the CB Northwest so that we, again, might believe what the Bible says is true about God's church. And we might repent of that which we are doing that is not pleasing to our Lord so that we might be a people who by our love keep his commandments and we embrace our communities with the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the only power that will defeat the enemy that the Bible declares. So we've asked you to fill out that survey we're going to evaluate our churches, who we are as a covenant community. We're going to examine ourselves to see if there be anything in us that God is not pleased with, so that we might repent, that we might believe, and that we might love. Sixteen years I've been in this role which probably means it's about over. We better make sure what we hand to the next generation isn't another Jeroboam. We better make sure that what we hand to the next generation is that which we believe as best we can to be honoring of the purity of God's church, the church of the living God. So we ask you to do two things. In your association meetings tomorrow, we're going to give you a piece of paper, and we want you to share with us what's the greatest thing that you've seen God do in and through your church this last year. And then we want you to flip the paper over, and we want you to tell us this. What is the greatest barrier that you see that is in front of your church in 2016 that God needs to penetrate through, that God needs to bring down for your church to be more effective at taking the gospel to your community and around the world. This year, if we're going to be a movement is quicker than glacial speed, then we're going to have to align ourselves even more to what Jesus Christ has for us than we already have. I'm thankful to be a part of you, but I'm excited about what God can do with us if we will humble ourselves, repent, believe, love. could be amazing. Let's pray. Father, it is my privilege to 
be in this role, and I thank you for the opportunity to serve these churches. And Lord, as time marches on, we realize that our days on this earth are but few. They're like a vapor. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. And all we really can leave to the next generation is the things that we value. And God, we want to value what you value. And so, Lord, we want to look at ourselves as a covenant community of churches that have made incredible progress over these last 10 years. But, God, we have a long ways to go. And so would you just keep refining us? Would you keep showing us our sin? And, Lord, would you quickly lead us to repentance so that we might believe what your Bible says and that we might be able to, to love as you would have us to love? so that we could do way more than just meet people's physical needs, but that we could be an ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ that would cause people to want to repent and to believe in Jesus as their Savior. So, Lord, we truly want to kick down Satan's gates. We truly want to be a part of defeating his kingdom. We thank you that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And so tonight, in humble reverence of who you are and not underestimating the enemy that you have defeated, that you have given us to war against until you come, we pray that you would be pleased to use us in an epic battle of advancing the gospel. So show us our idolatry and help us to turn from it so that we might walk in newness of life, that we might breathe belief and love. And we'll give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.